all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Pohl, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to investors, entrepreneurs, and operators about all things value creation. Today, I am talking to TX Zuo, who is a general partner at Fika Ventures, which is a prolific seed fund in Southern California. Prior to that, TX was a managing partner at Carlin Ventures, a student at Stanford, ex-founder of e-commerce, and um, just an all-around great guy. TX, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me, David. It's a real treat to get to spend some time with you. You probably do the, you do like three or four of these a day, right? I, I, I try not to. I'm actually an introvert, so some of these podcasts get pretty scary. But once I get started, it actually becomes pretty fun. So I actually look forward to having these kind of real conversations. Yeah, the good news is no one listens to my podcast. So... <laughs> I don't think that's true, by the way. You're talking I've into heard great, a, I've, yeah. I've heard great things. You're talking into a vacuum right now. Yeah. So TX, I would love to hear your background story. Um, take me from from origin story. You know, I, I believe you you're second generation citizen. I am. I'm not even a citizen, so I'm I'm still here on a green card. So I'll tell you more about that story. Yeah, at let's some go. Point. Let's do it. Let's go. So I, I grew up in Singapore. For those who don't know, it's it's, it's an island city in Southeast Asia and sort of came over here on a full scholarship for college. And uh, I, I joke with most of my friends these days that I'm the accidental entrepreneur. So in my first year in college, uh, my dad had a health condition and it forced me to quit school to find ways to support the company, to support my family. So I ended up starting an online textbook marketplace, which uh, we scaled fortunately to 10 plus million in revenue. And we had a good exit in late 2006. So left school for a couple of years to start the company and ended up being one of the best experiences of my life. Um, I, I think what I learned from that process, although it was a very lonely journey, it kind of inspired me to help other entrepreneurs with in similar situations. So I, I think that's a long way of me kind of finding my way into venture capital. Did you ever run into uh, Valore when you were doing selling textbooks? Yeah, we were competing with platforms like Book Rafter. That was one of them. Uh, I think those were the early days of Check. So they they were competing with us as well. I, I think funny story. We've become pretty good friends with some of the founders at Check, and uh, do a lot of investing together with them these days. So I think fast forward fifteen years, people who were competing with me back in the day now have become fairly close friends. Yeah, I think there was like a a textbook e-commerce mafia like that kind of emerged. I knew there was a guy who was on my podcast. He was actually a S -S 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 San Diego guy named Bobby Brannigan, and huh. uh, he's got a he had a pretty successful exit and is doing a marketplace right now. But um, yeah. a lot of people made that okay. So you came in, you were a founder, had a successful exit. Um, did were you in school at that time or after school? 
uh, it was in school and I had to take some time off because we, we just didn't know how to run the company and be full-time students. And I wouldn't call it a successful exit. I think we were fortunate to have a good exit, but we didn't know what we were doing. So when we scaled the company to about 10 million in revenue, we had 28 people working at the company and that's where we got a bit stuck. So we were fortunate that a private equity fund came in and bought the company and ended up being a good outcome for my co-founder and myself. I, I think the biggest irony in it all is that I'm now a venture capitalist and back in the day we actually pitched 74 angel investors where we were trying to start a company and I think with me as a 20 year old at that point in time with my backpack on and not having a lot of business experience no one wanted to fund the company so it was almost accidental that we had to bootstrap the company and ended up uh, being a good outcome for both of us that's awesome that's awesome and then then you went into big four consulting uh, again, it's, it's. I think most of my life I've learned today is just going with the flow and recognizing good opportunities as I see them. So one of the advisors to my startup uh, was a gentleman by the name of Ron Daniel. So Ron ran the global McKinsey offices back in the early 80s to the late 90s. And he served an advisor to me. So when we sold the company, he came to me. It's like, hey, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? And I, my response was like, I've never had more than $5,000 in my bank account. So I'm going to chill <laughs> on the beach for, for a bit before I figure out next steps. And he's like, no, you should come and get some business experience because I've seen how horrible you were in the process. This could have been a much larger business. Right. So come work for me. Um, so he shipped me off uh, to London to work for McKinsey. I, I think the initial plan was to work there for a couple of months, but ended up being slightly over two years where I picked up some core business skills. But I, I, I knew deep in my heart that I wanted to come back to startups and venture capital. So um, after that two years, which again was a great experience for me just to learn the ropes, I came back to the US and tried to find my way back into startup land. What kind of stuff are you doing at McKinsey? I'm always curious because they have a pretty broad set of services and, and specialties. Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I think I wanted to get into one of the hardest kind of sectors. And at that time, it was the uh, financial services sector. So um, I, I think there was a lot of restructuring going on that was post Lehman Brothers crisis. So mm -hmm. we got into it and um, I think I, I serve two core functions. One, trying to be part of the SWAT team that was seen as the turnaround guys. Like, how do we turn businesses around? And this was a large part of my experience being a CEO before. I, I think the other thing that was pretty interesting is kind of opening up new customer segments for that fintech category. I think at that point back in 08, uh, financial services was a pretty predominantly offline industry that was fighting its way to do online customer acquisition. So I think that laid the seeds for uh, my future investing career, where fintech has now become kind of one of the core focus areas for Fika and was also a core focus area when I was back at Carlin. Yeah, so I definitely want to go into fintech because, you know, I want you to educate me. But tell me, so tell me the story about wanting to get back into startup land. How did you go from London back to California? Yeah, I, I was thinking about how I could either start a company in California or join a venture capital fund, but I realized I didn't have the minimum requirements was I didn't have a visa to come back to the US uh, <laughs> being a Singapore citizen. So I, I think the, the path of uh, least possible resistance was getting into a graduate school program. So I was fortunate enough to get accepted to a couple of schools, ended up going to Stanford for my MBA. Uh, and I was I, was, I pretty I pretty much had a focus when I got into Stanford. I was like, hey, either I want to try to figure out my second company or I want to get exposed to venture capital to see whether I liked it. So 
I, I think very quickly I was introduced to Innovation Endeavors, uh, which is Eric Schmidt's venture fund, and started working for them as an intern through business school. So it's been 20, 30 hours a week helping them look at companies. And I think we're very fortunate. One of the first few companies I got to work on at Innovation Endeavors was SoFi. So the cool. SoFi founders were actually in my business school class. So I, I joked that uh, I attended a class with them, had drinks with them, and ended up staying up late the same night to write the investment memo to invest in the company. But I, I think it's, it's almost miraculous when you come across these amazing companies so early on in your venture career, and you just get addicted. So I think that formed the basis of my continued interest in venture capital. So I, I think throughout business school was a great experience, but leaving business school, I knew that this was something I wanted to continue to focus on. I love that you said addicted. That's such a good word. Um, what about for you is addicting? Because I know what I'm addicted to, but I'm curious yeah. to know if it's different for other investors. I, I think it's it's the satisfaction of uh, seeing entrepreneurs figure out things very quickly and sort of testing out new ideas on a fast-paced basis. I mean, I, I think take into consideration that I came from McKinsey. So we we're trying to get people to change the way they're doing things. Right. And I was always kind of moving rocks up the mountain. Well, in this case, I was like just amazed about how people were thinking, how fast they move. So I, I think that adrenaline of watching companies thrive very quickly was what kind of lured me into venture capital. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's right. I mean, if I think if you do venture capital right, you're investing in founders that are absolutely electric and they're changing how things are being done and they're absolute brilliant and you just kind of get a front row seat to that and get to like bask in their brilliance. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, so uh, associate at Innovation Endeavors and then mm -hmm. what was what was next, Carlin? Yeah, so as I was leaving business school, I had a couple of conversations. Uh, one interesting conversation came from a family office based in Los Angeles. So they, they've seen what other family offices, I mean, to be fair, Innovation Endeavor started as a family office. So they saw what people could do with uh, their personal capital to invest in technology, and they wanted to do the same. So I, I think I had a very interesting background where I checked a couple of boxes for them. One, I was a formal entrepreneur, so they could trust me to get this started off the ground. I think second, I came from a family office kind of investing background, so I knew the parameters that we had to work with. Um, <laughs> Which so means they, there are no they, parameters, right? <laughs> there, there are no parameters. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but so I, I felt that they, and I was willing to take the risk. I, I think uh, as opposed to a lot of my other MBA classmates whom I love, um, this was a low paying job with quite a bit of upside. So given I had a decent financial outcome before I was able to sort of take on this challenge and build a fund, which excited me. I think this in itself became my second startup. Mm -hmm. uh, so eventually Carlin became a $30 million fund. We got started in 2012. Uh, again, was very fortunate. Uh, this is more luck than skill. I tell people that we've met uh, a few kind of game-changing companies. One of our early investments was in a company called Things, the medical apparel company that went public. Uh, we have a few company, other companies now at scale, like Chow Now, Crexy, Policy Genius. So it became a fund that became relatively well-known within the Southern California ecosystem. Uh, we were purely a seed fund focused on two main verticals, uh, B2B 
marketplaces and fintech. So, I mean, three actually. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, that was such an enjoyable experience. Building things from the ground. We didn't have a website. We didn't even have a name. Uh, we didn't have any reputation in the market. So it was me just hustling like an entrepreneur does, going and building the brand. Yeah, and so that was a family office but it was a single LP or did you bring on other LPs as well? That was a sing- that was a single LP and I think their goal was to keep it that way. And I, I think while I was very excited about what we are doing there, I had great ambitions to run a more institutional, larger seed fund. So I think the conversation came up naturally uh, kind of four years into it in, in early 2016, where we are chatting about bringing in external money and they felt that, hey, this wasn't part of their agenda. They wanted to continue down the same path. So uh, we parted ways in the best possible manner. I'm still very close to them. I still manage a couple of their legacy investments. But at that point, again, this this was, I think, David, what I talked about, about sort of seizing the opportunity and sort of recognizing kind of what's in the moment for me. So uh, at that point, I reconnected with uh, a friend I've known for about three or four years at that point, Eva Ho. We've done, we did a bit of angel investing together. We even invested in some companies. She was a partner at Susa Ventures while I was at Carlin. And we decided that, hey, both of us share a similar mindset in terms of the way we want to support entrepreneurs and how kind of our initial focus would be the Southern California ecosystem. So we kicked off FICA in 2016, uh, not knowing whether we would be successful at fundraising, not knowing whether we had a paycheck coming, but both of us were former entrepreneurs and were willing to take that leap of faith. And how big was the first fund? The first one was $41 million, but I think if you unpack that forty one, involve a lot of conversations. I, I, I think I'm, I'm very open with your listeners that it took us a full eight and a half months to raise that first fund. And this was us full-time doing fundraising. So they like eight to 10 meetings a, a, a day, uh, flying to multiple countries. We even did kind of two-day trips in coach, by the way, to Singapore to raise money that allowed us to piece together that $41 million. But I, I think, again, it goes back to us kind of being entrepreneurs. I think we weren't afraid of failure. I think we had the tenacity that most entrepreneurs have that enabled us to close the first fund. I think uh, it's, it's one of those life experiences where if you told me today that's what I had to go through, I'm not sure whether I would have done it. But uh, <laughs> at that point in time, it seemed like the right decision to make. I feel like... 35 million, 30, 35 million is kind of that number that you have. And this is just completely anecdotal mm-hmm. and the number I have in my head. There's no math behind it. But, you know, that I think would make sense for a seed fund to conceptually be successful. Did, how did you think about fundraising and, and the amount that needed to be raised for the ownership that you needed to to be hit the returns you wanted? Yeah, so uh, Carlin was a $30 million fund, and then Sousa's first fund was a $25 million fund. And I think we felt that they were meaningful sizes for first funds, but at the same time, I think we're leaving uh, some equity on the table. I think as we look back into kind of both our first funds, being Sousa One and Carlin, we could have we could have wrote slightly larger checks into our winners, but just couldn't because we were constrained by capital. So when we went out for FICA One, we felt that around 45 million was the right number, and we ended up pretty close to our target, which was 41. So, I, I think to break that down a bit more, it allowed us to own kind of call it seven to eight percent in each company that we were invested in. So they're pretty meaningful. Allowed us to lead deals that we had high conviction around, but still have the flexibility as a first fund to co-invest alongside great investors like yourself. So, I, I, I think 
we felt that that was the right size structurally because of what we've seen in the past from our prior funds. Yeah, no, I think so. I think that's right. And so when you say like the winners, would you say like that would be the, um, you know, the ones that were coming back and you were like following on for the second, third round? Yes. Yeah, those I mean, those were the winners, and and also I I think we we were fortunate that we had uh, I wouldn't call it a huge reputation, but some reputation within the startup community, and we know founders pretty well because this was our second time running a fund. So we had some repeat founders come back to us and say like, hey, if you could write me a million dollar check, um, I would let you lead our round. So with a forty forty five million dollar fund, it enabled us to do that. I think if we were a twenty five million dollar fund, I think we would be more hesitant to step up and write a one one and a half million dollar check. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. And so, how do you how do you think about managing risk in a seed fund? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question, right? Because I I think a lot of managers uh, don't take enough risk. I think Hunter Walk had this great post where no one likes to see failures these days, but I think part of those failures are the risks that we should be taking as seat managers. So I I think the way we think about it at Pika, it's pretty different. So we try to manage risk kind of post-investment in a couple of ways. So I I think one way is being very judicious about how we spend follow-on capital and reserves. So uh, this might seem counterintuitive, but we said no to follow-on investments in companies that have gotten term sheets from kind of tier one investors. So we feel that the risk-reward ratio is not in line with what we think it should be. I think if a company receives a valuation that's way too high relative to traction, sometimes we won't invest. I think the the other thing that we've done reasonably well is that uh, we've taken a conservative approach as as it relates to managing LP money. So uh, this is pretty public. I think whenever we pitch LPs, we say the same thing. So happy to put it on record that whenever we have a position that's 10 times in the money overall, so this includes kind of follow-on investments. So we put say 3 million in total in a company and now our position's worth 30 million or more, we will consider taking a third to half our position off the table at that point mm-hmm. to manage risk and manage liquidity to LPs. Obviously, there's some trade-offs we're making with regards to upside, but I think in the long run, it talks about the marginal cost of capital, which we're trying to optimize for. Are you seeing a lot of opportunities for secondaries in today's market? Maybe Less not so, today, right? today, but, <laughs> but yeah. you know, over the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I think it's been a very healthy market, and we've been the beneficiaries. I think with any late stage round, I think we've usually been offered an opportunity to sell part of our position. Uh, I think the only tricky part is because we are leading a lot of these deals. I think the founders and the new lead investors want to avoid any signaling risk. Yeah, right. to say that hey, your first back at the company. Uh, has lost confidence in the company, is not investing more. That's not the case. I think we're just trying to manage risk here. So I think there's a fine balance uh, between how much we sell and sort of at the same time being able to manage risk for LPs. But it's definitely been a good environment till I would say the last six months. Yeah, no, absolutely. I um I feel like my emotions with money are like so bipolar and <laughs> like I hate losing money and when I make money I feel like it's not enough like I'm just constantly yes. unhappy right? yeah. <laughs> but, I just, but, I, but I just keep running to it yeah that's a trade of a good venture capitalist by the way it, it, it proves that you're well suited for this job <laughs> good um, awesome so tell me um, you and Eva who I've 
not yet met who I want to meet because I hear she's an incredible mind and she's um, super deep in the healthcare space, which I'm trying to get deeper into. Tell me a little bit about kind of how you want to approach founders, you know, how you think about yourself in the market, you know, and kind of going a little bit deeper there because I'd love to kind of understand that. Yeah. So when we first started Pika, I think uh, there are a couple of principles that kind of we wanted to abide by. I think both of us knew that we were great at kind of early stage company building because that's what we did. And sort of we wanted to stay true to our promise to founders that, hey, we're here to help you with things that we know well. And we're never going to venture into kind of new areas where we, we feel that we might not be the best value-add investors. So I, I think we agree that the core focus would always be early stage. So that's pre-Series A for us. Um, I think the second is that we wanted to be remain a very focused venture fund. So focus in the sense of we're not investing in, in kind of 50 companies per fund. We're focused on 25 to 30 companies, where we're only doing eight to 10 deals a year. This allows us to really get hands-on, which is kind of what we love doing and help companies. I think the, the second kind of perspective in terms of focus would be uh, a very narrow set of sectors that we support. So right now we focus on fintech enterprise software, marketplaces and a bit of healthcare IT. I think that enables us to curate our network to be able to support these founders, whether it comes to talent introductions, whether it comes to potential potential customer introductions, that's pretty important. And I, I think the, the third is that I think we wanted to be, be willing to swim against the tide, right? I know it's pretty easy to say this, but I think one of our core manifestos, and we always have to remind ourselves, by the way, I'm not saying this comes easy, but I think we shy away from backing what is uh, most popular, obvious. And I think that has paid off over the last, the first few funds that we've had. I, I think um, our, our winners that have emerged from these funds are deals that sort of in the early days, uh, they are passed on by several venture funds. I think uh, very few saw the potential, but I, I think there's something special we saw in these founders. So they don't need to be kind of 10 out of 10 in any regard, but I, I think we try to find founders who we feel have a very strong kind of product market fit or founder market fit where they understand kind of the problem they're going after and have a very unique perspective. And I think they're just very resilient. They're willing to try out kind of multiple things until it works. And those are the founders we gravitate towards. Yeah, it's it's really hard, I think, for, for me being an early stage manager, especially when you're talking about deals. I mean, everyone's in the opinion business, right? I mean, and, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the amount of work that we do to understand an industry and an investment, and then you talk to people and then everyone's just got like an opinion from like something that they, you know, like it's a word association, right? And they just throw an opinion out there or, oh, you're paying how much for that, right? And it's just like, you know, it it, it gets, it can be discouraging. Like you have to have like this underlying conviction that goes beyond what anyone else thinks, right? Um, mm -hmm. To not in order consensus build. So can you educate me, TX, a little bit? Because I use this podcast a lot for my own personal education. Can you tell me like, why is FinTech was is such a hot space like what's the opportunity there for you um help me understand because i i never really played in that i was always more kind of enterprise vertical SaaS, and you know like recurring revenue business models you know being able to pipe additional products and you know payments like all that stuff makes sense to me but like the, the mm -hmm. fintech you know arena you know was something that I, I'd never really explored. So I'd love to hear kind of your take on it from a seed perspective and why it's so captivating and why it garners so much attention. 
Yeah, maybe I'll talk very quickly about the evolution. So I think wave one was that online kind of distribution transformation that I talked about. I think back till kind of, I'd say the early 2000s, a lot of fintech was done offline. And I think in the last 10 years, we've seen everything from insurance to mortgage products to banking being done online. And I think the second big change is the consumer's trust in kind of smaller organizations. So I think right, if, if, if we told our parents that we'll be banking with a neo bank today, I think all of them would sort of say, oh shit, I think they're gonna steal all your money and this is not safe. <laughs> but I, I think that's a huge consumer mindset that has helped the proliferation of all these new companies. So I, I think what's interesting about FinTech is that everything used to be handled by very large organization and now it's truly democratized where the best product and the best company will win. So I think that's something that excites us a lot about fintech and the opportunity. I, I think the the second thing is that um, I, I this is sounds very cliched, but almost every company it's a fintech company. I think in one or uh, other regard, either you're handling payments. Um, there's an opportunity for you to sell embedded uh, financial products to your end customer, whether even if you're a SaaS company, maybe this is, a, I'd say, a recurring revenue loan that you could be selling, or maybe this is an insurance product that you could help kind of a 3PL company sell into. So I, I just think that that becomes very interesting where fintech is not only about the originator, but finding kind of distribution partnerships all up and down the food chain, which has become pretty interesting. Thing. I, I think the the third thing about fintech that is which we all know well it's i think financial services has always been kind of one of the largest um sectors in the economy but what's more interesting is that kind of the rules governing how we play uh how products are formed are changing every single day i think right now there's a huge focus on kyc and aml so there'll be innovation in this space i think now with kind of interest rates going up i'm sure there'll be innovation about how kind of the largest financial institutions think about underwriting and mortgages as well. So I think that constant evolution of the financial sector makes this space very interesting for us. Mm -hmm. And how does how does the rising cost of capital, how is that going to affect fintech companies? I mean, obviously, it's going to depend on the products that they're offering. But, you know, in general, I mean, is this something that is just going to scurry for, for more innovation? Do you feel like this is the margins are going to get compressed and the cost structures are going to be hurtful? How do you think about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think on a on a couple levels, money has been pretty cheap, right? So I think there has never been a problem convincing the consumer to take on additional credit, and I think that's going to change very quickly. And kind of, mm -hmm. I also think that underwriting standards will get a bit tighter, where even if the consumer wants to take on additional credit, I think they'll undergo closer scrutiny. So that's going to be pretty interesting. And I, I, I hate to say this, but I think the other side of the equation that we would need to think about are defaults that are going to happen over the next two years. Like, how are we going to handle that? Is there a better company to educate consumers on kind of the, the obligations that they have is there a better debt collection platform that helps companies predict which segment of their consumers are likely to default? So I, I think it'll bring along a whole new wave of, of innovation, but more on kind of the, the debt management and repayment side of things rather than, I would say, credit origination. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's, it's going to go to the other piece, yeah. right, the other side of it. Um, yep. TX, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I've got a couple canned questions, if you wouldn't sure. mind. What is your favorite book? 
Uh, I'm going to cheat and name two. So I, I don't really have like a favorite book per se, but I, I love reading books that kind of cast light on the structural issues that we are facing within our society. So highly recommend these two. So I, I think the first is The Price We Pay by Marty Makari. So it really gets into why healthcare is inefficient in America and costly and kind of the lack of transparency. So I think a lot of us complain about, oh, why are we paying so much for healthcare? Why don't we understand what's going on? This this book really breaks it down for the layperson like me. So, and the the other one it's uh, the Lords of Easy Money by Christopher Leonard. So again, this helps break down the complex economic problems the U.S. is facing for the high high levels of debt that we have to like how monetary policy hasn't been really effective or income equality that we are seeing. So I, I think to give, to give you kind of a snippet, it's like we printed 300 years of money in two short months during the COVID crisis and the trade-offs that we have to suffer with thereafter. So I, I, I have an inquisitive mind. So for me, it's just learning about like, why are we going through these challenges as a society? So those are the type of books I like to read. Yeah, I mean, I, I the, the whole like COVID money stimulus, PPP, you know, money printing, you know, I, I've been talking about that a great deal. And I have a lot of people who quickly say, well, we really needed that, right? Or else everyone would go out of business. And I'm like, I don't know if that's true. I think that still was an exorbitant amount of money that was pumped into the system. I, I agree. I, I don't think it, it, it was sustainable. It's like a one-off shock to the economy. And uh, yeah, you're right. It can be argued whether we truly needed it. Maybe it was like short-term pain that we had to live or through. Or was it too much? Like, gains. could we have done yeah. half as much, right? You know, yeah. it's just, you know, the amount um, just seemed a Exactly little... right. Because, I mean, like, just you, just you read all these fraud stories. I mean, it makes you want to throw up. Yep. Um, awesome. Best piece of business advice you've ever received? Uh, I think it's being open-minded about where the next opportunity might come from. But if you feel it's the right one or the wrong one, don't be afraid to take the leap. Yeah, I think the only way you know if you're correct is if, if you take the chance. This was uh, what Ron Daniels told me when he convinced me to join McKinsey. And then when I was leaving McKinsey, he's like, hey, this is probably the right decision for you. So I think I've, I've kept that mindset throughout my career, and it served me pretty well. Awesome. Everybody, thank you for tuning into the Capital Stack. We drop an episode every Tuesday on all your favorite platforms, Apple, YouTube, and Spotify. If you like it, please subscribe, comment, tell a friend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.